0: Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. Welcome to Krista Again here on Talk show. It's January, Friday, January twenty-seventh, two
1: thousand and twelve. Thank you for listening and praise Yahweh. I decided to present the prophecy
0: of Hosea commencing with this week. Because on a Saturday program over the next few weeks, I plan to present my papers on the Scythians and their origins, that there were two Scythian papers, um, Herodotus, Scythians, Persians, and Prophecy, and I'm going to present that tomorrow night. And that's not a very long paper, but I'm going to um, present a lot of the translations of the actual Assyrian inscriptions, which fully corroborate the biblical records that we have of the deportations of Israel and Judah by the Assyrians. I'm going to do that because the um, the proofs of an actual Israelite kingdom as the Bible says it existed are written all over these ancient Assyrian inscriptions that have been dug out of the ground. And people that don't know these and and see these things are easily deceived by the people who scoff at the Bible and try to say that it's a bunch of mythological fairy tales, when in fact it is absolutely historical. At least from the time of Genesis 10. I believe the first nine chapters of Genesis, but I can't prove them historically. That, that's just a fact of, um, of life. We just don't
1: have those kind of records, right? Hosea, more than any other prophet, with the arguable exception of Isaiah, goes
0: hand in hand with the history of the deportations of Israel and Judah. Hosea lived right, leading right into that very time, and that's when he wrote, as the Assyrians were um, undergoing their conquest of the known world, and Hosea, the mission that he had was to warn the children of Israel of what was coming and, and what their fate was. So that's what we have tonight, the prophecy of Hosea. Hosea began his prophesying according to his own introduction at the time when Uzziah, Uzziah is sometimes confusingly called Azariah in the King James Version, Uzziah ruled over Judah, and Jeroboam, too, ruled over Israel. Both of these men reigned for a long time. Uzziah, who was stricken with leprosy while he ruled, He ruled from about 791 to 739 B.C., 52 years over Judah. And Jeroboam, too, ruled over Israel from 793 to 753 B.C., or approximately 40 years. The dates, of course, being... uh, All the dates of the ancient kings of Israel are arguable, and, and it's hard to come to an exact consensus, right? So they're all approximate. Therefore, Hosea began the prophecy before 753 B.C. He wrote until the days of Hezekiah. Hezekiah ruled Judah from about 729 to 698 B.C. And since there was no king in Israel after Hosea's rule ended circa 722 B.C., we see that in the introduction to his prophecy, Hosea did not mention any king after Jeroboam II, even though six kings followed him before Israel was fully broken as a kingdom. And we will offer those dates shortly.
1: Therefore, Hosea wrote from no later than 753
0: B.C. until at least 722 B.C., a period of at least 32 years during the time described in the Bible, If we wanted to find the years when Hosea wrote in the Bible, we would turn to 2 Kings chapters 14 through 20 or to 2
1: Chronicles chapters 26 to 32. And that's the period during which Hosea wrote. Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. The word of Yahweh that
0: came unto Hosea the son of Biri, In the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. This is, for the most part, the same period of time during which the prophet Isaiah wrote. Isaiah tells us explicitly that he did his prophesying during that same period. The prophets Amos and Jonah, and I'm going to date all the prophets here real quick. The prophets Amos, Jonah, and Joel all prophesied in the time of Jeroboam II and Uzziah. So we see at least five of our prophets can be put right at that very
1: time during the two long reigns, the, the long reigns of those two kings. Now Amos, Jonah, and
0: Joel all wrote near or perhaps slightly earlier than the time of Hosea and Isaiah, and that definitely seems to be true of Jonah and of Joel. Micah and Nahum both wrote towards the end of this period, in the time of Hezekiah. Habakkuk and Zephaniah came a little later than they did. Even later than them are
1: Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, who were all prophets of the last days of the
0: first temple in Jerusalem. After the destruction of Jerusalem, Haggai, Obadiah, Zechariah, and Malachi were all prophets of the
1: early second temple period. Or of the period between the temples.
0: Now now I've had people tell me that Obadiah was a prophet of the 8th century B.C., and earlier than most of these other prophets. That would put him in this time period, too. Well, well, um, that's just wrong. Obadiah was writing in retrospect of the assistance which the Edomites gave the Chaldeans when they destroyed Jerusalem. That dates Obadiah, who was writing in retrospect, not as a matter of prophecy. That dates Obadiah to the Second Temple period. He was a prophet of the early Second Temple period. Hosea 1, verse 2, the beginning of the word of Yahweh by Hosea. And Yahweh said to Hosea, go, take unto thee. Today men do this voluntarily, right? Take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land has committed great whoredom, departing from Yahweh. Later in Hosea's prophecy, we will see the relationship between Yahweh and Israel, actually in chapter 2, explained allegorically as that between a husband and a wife, the wife being the nation. Hosea is, of course, not the only prophet to use this allegory, and may not have even been the first, since it is apparent that Joel probably wrote earlier than Hosea, and, and he uses the allegory. Here, Yahweh instructs the prophet to go find a whore for a wife. And therefore, God is using the prophet as a direct example of his own relationship with Israel, the nation of whores. Verse 3, So we went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which
1: conceived, who conceived, and bore him a son. Gomer is going to be a long discussion, right? Many Israelite identity commentators, especially in
0: British Israel, point out how fitting it is that the name of the whore that Hosea chose to marry was named Gomer. And they assume that the Saxons, who are demonstrably descended from the Israelite Scythians, had likewise joined themselves to the Celts who were said to have descended from the Cimmerians, and that part is true in part, whom Josephus mistakenly identified as descendants of the Jepethite Gomer mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. Well, the historical truth is a little more complex than that, but Josephus was wrong in his identification. However, many people in British Israel and among mainstream commentators have since followed. And you could find in many mainstream commentaries today
1: that Domer was the ancestor, the eponymous ancestor of
0: the Khmerians or the Kimeroi. Many commentators today assert following the error of Josephus that the Celts are sprung from Gomer simply because of the similarities in the consonants of the names G.M.R. Gomer and K.M.R. Kimmeroy. And many of the so-called Celts did indeed descend from the Cimmerians. And many others, the earlier Celts, the the, the Celts that the archaeologists like to call proto-Celts, they yeah. actually descended from the Phoenicians who arrived in Western Europe long before the Khmeroi, the Khmerians. Yet the Chimeroi are clearly the Khmeri, or as it's often spelled, Qumri, Humri, H-U-M-R-I. And, and we have other examples in Assyrian Syrian language of that H becoming a C-H or a K sound because it was a very guttural language. One extant example is the River Ram, known as the Kurper, K-U-R-P-U-R, which in ancient times was called the River Huber,
1: H-U-B-U-R. The Celts or the Kimmeroi are clearly the Khmeri
0: of the Assyrian inscriptions. They are not Gomer. There is no tribe which can be identified as Kimeroi in secular records at all, in the Assyrian records, or, or in the Hittite records, or in the Sumerian records. There is no tribe that can be identified as the Kimmeroi until, until after the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites. There are no Kymri in the Assyrian records, until the Israelites are identified by the Assyrians as the Khmeri. Even other Assyrian words, which are imagined by mainstream scholars to refer to the Khmerians, such as the Gimneri, do not appear at all in Assyrian inscriptions until the time of Esar-Haddon which is approximately 681 BC, at least 40 years after the first deportations of Israelites to those regions where the Scythians and the Chimerians are later found. If there is a tribe identifiable by the Genesis 10 name of Gomer, then that tribe is wanting in the inscriptions for many centuries. To be fair, none of these the Chimerians, can be readily associated with the Geppethite Gomer since there is no intermediary evidence which would support such an assertion. It just simply doesn't exist. Gomer in the Bible is mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 and in Chronicles where the genealogies of the children of Noah are repeated. But aside from that, Gomer is only mentioned one other time, where in Ezekiel chapter 38, we see that Gomer is allied with Togarma and Ashkenaz and other tribes, confederated against the children of Israel in the last days. Therefore, where we find the nations aligned against Israel in the last days, we shall find Gomer. And we know that that cannot be the Celts among the Saxons, who are certainly biblical Israel. Yet, while Ezekiel identified these people as the Jepethite tribe of Gomer, those people who were among the masses in in southern Eurasia with Togarmar and Ashkenaz and um, under the um, confederation of the Rus, according to Ezekiel's prophecy, that does not mean that they were identified by that name in ancient historic records. In other words, the Bible, the God of the Bible may have recognized a people on the Eurasian steppes as Gomer. But those people at that time were no longer using that name, and we can't really identify the Gomer of Genesis chapter 10 in history. Because the Kimeroi
1: or the Cimmerians, are the Cymri, and biblical prophecy demonstrates that. and I will be getting into that shortly in my series
0: on the Germanic origins and the identity of the Scythians and Parthians and related
1: tribes over the next several weeks. The real meaning behind the name of the woman here
0: is that Gomer is also a Hebrew word that means complete. The old kingdom had run its course in the children of Israel had fulfilled their sin, and therefore Yahweh would make an end of that kingdom and send them all off into captivity. So therefore
1: we see that Gomer represents that idea that the kingdom is complete, their whoredom was complete. Gomer's father's name is Diblaim, which
0: means in Hebrew, two cakes. And while Gomer would have three children by Hosea, the two cakes may, of course, be representative of Judah and Israel.
1: That's just a side note. It's too obvious, right? Hosea won four. And Yahweh said unto him, call his name Jezreel.
0: This is the first child with Hosea and his newfound wife. For yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Jeroboam 2, the king of Israel when Hosea begins to prophesy, is a member of the house of Jehu. He's actually Jehu's great-grandson. Jezreel means God sows. This is a reference to 2 Kings chapter 10 and the destruction of the house of Ahab in the physical place called Jezreel. Jehu had a commission from Yahweh to supplant the wicked house of Ahab, but he did not use that commission righteously. And he turned out to be just as wicked as Ahab in the end. And therefore Yahweh here uses Jehu as a prime example of the wickedness of the nation Israel. Elisha the prophet, or I'm sorry, Elijah the prophet, sent the following message to Jehu. And the delivery of that message is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 9 verses 5 through 10. This is the message of the prophet. To Jehu, And when he came, behold, the captains of the host were sitting. And he said, I have an errand to thee, O captain. And Jehu said, to, Unto which of all of us? And he said, To thee, O captain, meaning to Jehu, who was among his troops. And he arose and went into the house. And he poured the oil on his head and said unto him, Thus saith Yahweh, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of Yahweh, even over Israel. And thou shalt smite the house of Ahab thy master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants the prophets and the blood of all of the servants of Yahweh at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab. Him that pisses against the wall, meaning every male, right? And him that is shut up and left in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the land, or the district of Jezreel. And there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. The prophet, the man who delivered the prophecy opened the door and fled. When Jehu told his fellows, all of them who were servants in the army of, of the king, they accepted the message and they proclaimed Jehu their king. Ahab was already dead. And his son Joram, a son whom he had with Jezebel, was king in Israel. Jehu, being a captain in his army, was commissioned by Yahweh to lead a mutiny. Jehu slew Joram in Jezreel as he was meeting with Ahaziah, the king of Judah. And then Jehu also had Ahaziah, the king of Judah, killed as he was trying to retreat. So it is evident that immediately Jehu overstepped his commission. Since Ahaziah was not... Of the house of Ahab. He was actually married to a daughter of Ahab, which it can be established was a daughter of Ahab by a wife other than Jezebel. Ahab had well over 70 children and many wives. As it is related at the end of 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu witnessed the fact that Jezebel's corpse was eaten by dogs before it could be buried. Seeing then the words of the prophet who gave him his commission were actually fulfilled, Jehu exclaimed, as it is recorded in 2 Kings chapter nine, that this is the word of Yahweh which he spoke to his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the portion of Jezreel shall dogs eat the flesh of Jezebel. So there was no doubt that Jehu should have known the source of his ability to be king over Israel, as the prophet had appointed him. It came right from God. Seeing these two prophecies come true in a short time, Jehu certainly recognizes that. It may be fitting to retell the rest of the story of Jehu, and I would like to
1: read 2 Kings chapter 10 and Ahab. had 70 sons in Samaria. And Jehu wrote letters and sent to Samaria,
0: under the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to them that brought up Ahab's children, saying, Now as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and meaning Ahab, and there are with you chariots and horses, a fenced city also, and armor, look even out, the best and the meatest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid. And they said, Behold, two kings stood not before him, meaning before Jehu. How then shall we stand? And he that was over the, over the house, and he that was over the city, the elders also, and the bringers up of the children sent to Jehu, saying, We are thy servants, and will do all that thou shalt bid us. We will not make any king. Do thou that which is good in thine eyes. He then wrote a letter the second time to them, saying, If you be mine, and if you will hearken unto my voice, take you the heads of the men, your master's sons, and come to me to Jezreel by tomorrow this time. Now the king's sons, being seventy persons, were with the great men of the city which brought them up. And it came to pass, when the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slew 70 persons and put their heads in baskets and sent him them to Jezreel. They sent Jehu, the heads, to Jezreel. And there came a messenger and told him, saying, they have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, lay them in two heaps at the entering of the gate until the morning. And it came to pass in the morning that when he went out and stood and said to all the people, You be righteous. Behold, I conspired against my master and slew him, meaning Joram. But who slew all these? Now Know now that there shall fall under the earth nothing of the word of Yahweh, which Yahweh spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For Yahweh has done that which he spoke by his servant Elijah. In addition to Jehu's recognition of the power of, of the fate of Jezebel, as foretold by the prophet, Jehu again acknowledges the power of God in the fulfillment of the words of his prophet concerning the sons of Ahab. Verse eleven. So Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, and all his great men,
1: and his kinfolk his priests, which were all bow priests, until he left him none remaining.
0: And he arose and departed and came to Samaria. And as he was at the shearing house, in the way, Jehu met with the brethren of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, who Jehu had already slain. And he said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the brethren of Ahaziah, and we go down to salute the children of the king and the children of the queen. Of course, they couldn't have known that Jehu had already killed Joram and had already killed Jezebel and had already killed Ahaziah. And he said, take them alive. And they took them alive and slew them at the pit of the shearing house. Even two and forty men, neither he left any of them. And here again, it's clear to me that Jehu overstepped the commission he had from God. These men were not of the house of Ahab, and therefore Jehu has shed innocent blood at Jezreel. Verse 15. And when he was departed thence, he lighted on Jehonadab the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he saluted him and said to him, Is thine heart right as thy heart is with thy, my heart is with thy heart? And Jehonadab answered, It is. If it be, give thee thy hand. And he gave him his hand. And he took him up into the chariot. And he said, come with me and see my zeal for Yahweh. So they made him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he slew all that remained unto Ahab in Samaria, till he had destroyed him. According to the saying of Yahweh, which he spoke to Elijah, it is the bloodshed at Jezreel that Jehu is held accountable for in Hosea it is not
1: the destruction of the house of Ahab that Jehu is held accountable for Jehu did what he was commissioned to do by destroying the entire house of Ahab but he
0: also killed and and he killed the house of Ahab not only he had, had them killed in Jezreel he had those remaining in Samaria killed But Jehu's not held accountable for the deaths in Samaria because they are of the house of Ahab. There were many men, King Ahaziah of Judah and many men of his household, who were basically innocent, who Jehu also killed. And he had no commission to do that. Verse 18. And Jehu gathered all the people together and said unto them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu shall serve him much. Now this is only a ploy on Jehu's part, right? Now therefore call unto me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants and all his priests. Let none be wanting, for I have a great sacrifice to do to Baal. Whoever shall be wanting, he shall not live. But Jehu did it in subtlety to the intent that he might destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu said, Proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal. And they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent to all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left that came not. And they came into the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was full from one end to the other. And he said unto him that was over the vestry, Bring forth vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. And he went and brought forth vestments. And Jehu went and Jehonadab the son of Rechab into the house of Baal, and said unto the worshippers of Baal, Search, and look that there be here with you none of the servants of Yahweh, but the worshippers of Baal only. And when they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings, Jehu appointed fourscore men without or outside, and said, If any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escape, He that lets him go, his life shall be for the life of him, the man who escaped. And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of the offering, of offering the burnt offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, go in and slay them, let none come forth. And they smote them with the edge of the sword, and the guard and the captains cast them out, and went into the city of the house of Baal. And they brought forth the images out of the house of Baal, and burned them. And they broke down the image of Baal, and broke down the house of Baal, and made it a drought house unto this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel. Howbeit, from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin, Jehu departed not after them. To wit, the golden calves that were in Bethel, and that were in Dan. And the Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and is done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart. Thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Jehu went far beyond the original commission which he was given, by destroying much of the house of Ahaziah along with the house of Ahab, and by spilling much innocent blood in Jezreel. Yet here he was still commended by Yahweh for fulfilling that which he was given to do, and further, apparently, for destroying bow worship out of Israel, even if he did not remove the golden calves of Jeroboam, which were set up by Jeroboam I, right? the first king of Israel, and which were at his time nearly 100 years old. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of Yahweh, the God of Israel, with all his heart. For he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, Jeroboam one, who made Israel to sin. In those days Yahweh began to cut Israel short. And Hazael, the king of Syria, smote them in all the coasts of Israel, from Jordan eastward all the land of Gilead, the Gadites and the Reubenites and the Manasites, tribe of Manasseh, from Aror, which is by the river Arnon, that's the portion of Manasseh in the land of Moab, even Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehu slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria, and Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his stead. And the time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was twenty and eight years. Even with all that Jehu acknowledged of the word of God, was all that he saw fulfilled with his eyes, he chose not to complete the reforms which he had undertaken and which he had all the power in the world to complete. He was commended for everything that he did well, which he was told to do, so it cannot be the blood of the house of Ahab that Yahweh would avenge, which is mentioned here in, o- which is mentioned here in Hosea since Yahweh commissioned Jehu to destroy the house of Ahab. Rather, and it's not mentioned until this, this prophecy in Hosea, rather it must be the innocent blood that Jehu said it shed at Jezreel that Yahweh would avenge, where Jehu went beyond his commission by killing most of the house of Ahaziah, the king of Judah. Once we recognize the power of God, we must continue to walk in his ways. If we falter, we shall be held accountable for our errors. If we stay true to him, we have an advocate for our sins, and they will not be imputed. Jehu, after all that he witnessed, still taking, as the text says, no heed to walk in the law of the Lord, But the law of the Lord God of Israel with all of his heart, Jehu is used as our example here. Of why Yahweh found it necessary to cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel, as it says in Hosea chapter 1 verse 4. Note that it does not say that the house of Israel itself would be cut off, but only that the kingdom of the house of Israel would be cut off, placing the blame for the corruption of the people on its rulers. Jehu, the best of men, who fully acknowledged the power of the word
1: of God when he saw it, still
0: could not bring good government to the people. And I haven't even mentioned Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, who was most likely a Kenite, as we could tell from Jeremiah chapter 35, who Jehu took on for an advisor. If Jehu could not bring good government to the people, a man that saw the word of God in action, a man that saw the fulfillment of the prophecies, how could any (laughs) of his successors do the same. So the kingdom had to be cut off because it was corrupt. And Jehu is an example. No matter how good a man is, if the kingdom's corrupt, you're
1: not going to fix it. You're always going to fall short. Only God could be our king. Hosea 1.6, and she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him,
0: call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Now, now the ASV, I have to mention this, right? The ASV has a reading here that I should in any, way, in any ways pardon them. However, the King
1: James Version is fully supported by the Greek of the Septuagint. But I will utterly take them away. Not long after this time, the prophet Isaiah wrote that within
0: three score and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it not be a people. Isaiah 7, verse 8. The 65 years can likely be counted from the time that the Assyrians put Samaria under tribute, which is circa 740 BC, 742 BC, to the time of Esarhaddon, the Assyrian king, and his last campaigns in Israel, which are mentioned by Ezra, and which happened circa 676 BC. Loru Hama, Strong's number 3819, means simply no mercy. Israel was told through the prophet that they would be utterly taken away, and we had Isaiah saying basically the same thing at the same time. The Assyrians had already been taking away and resettling other nations, and the Assyrian threat to the sovereignty of Israel was already evident and can be seen in the prophecy of Jonah, who was praying that God would destroy Nineveh. Assyrian historical texts, uncovered by archaeologists, which date to the 7th uh, i'm sorry to the 8th and 9th centuries BC showed that the Assyrians had already conquered the Mesopotamian world resettled many of the peoples who resisted them made several military campaigns into Palestine and by this time already had Tyre Sidon and Damascus under tribute these texts also may be used as i plan on doing in part tomorrow night here.
1: These texts may also be used to fully corroborate the biblical accounts
0: of the size and the strength of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah at this time.
1: The Bible, it can be demonstrated, is history. Verse 7. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, And I will save them
0: by Yahweh, their God. And will not save them by the bow,
1: nor by the sword, nor by battle, nor by horses,
0: nor by horsemen.
1: Israel would be carried away, but Judah would be preserved. Now it is clear from the records that the
0: Assyrians carried away 46 fenced cities of Judah. Many thousands of its people along with Israel we cannot lose sight of the fact that Judah while it was broken off into a separate house is still a portion of Israel and still has a share in many in the many prophecies pertaining to Israel in general however the inhabitants of Jerusalem were not taken and the kingdom remained intact in spite of losing much of its population in those 46 fenced cities.
1: Judah would be preserved from the Assyrian conquests, and therefore those who remained
0: were still considered the kingdom of Judah, and those who were taken away were generally called the Ten Tribes, even though
1: Many thousands of people from those 46 fenced cities of Judah were taken away with them. Judah
0: would be preserved for the Assyrian conquest, and it would not happen under their own strength. The reference here in Hosea is to the events later recorded in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 34 and 36, where it says... For I, meaning Yahweh, will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass, that night the angel of Yahweh went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred fourscore and five thousand, that's 185,000 soldiers. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, They were all dead corpses. Well, it wasn't the corpses that arose. It was the people of Jerusalem, right? (laughs) So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. His army had been destroyed. Judah was saved, but not by its own strength. This leads me to discuss a similar prophecy found in Isaiah. I'm compelled to do this because many decades ago, Some writer in British Israel related this prophecy to events which occurred in 1917. And to me, that's a foolish attempt by man to place Yahweh's stamp of approval on Anglo-Jewish Zionism. That's what's going on in a lot of that British Israel prophecy. Sadly, many in Christian identity, even today, follow these Anglo-Jewish interpretations of prophecy. Here is Isaiah chapter 31. It's short. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help, and stay on horses, and trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek Yahweh. Yet he also is wise and will bring evil. And will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses, flesh and not spirit.
1: When Yahweh shall stretch out his hand, both he that helps shall fall, and he that is helped shall fall
0: down, and they shall all fall together. For thus hath Yahweh spoken unto me, like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him. He will not be afraid of their voice nor abase himself for the noise of them. So shall Yahweh of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof as birds flying. So will Yahweh of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also he will deliver it and passing over he will preserve it. Turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted, for in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your own hands have made unto you for a sin. Then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, not of a mighty man, and the sword, not of a mean man, shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be discomfited. And he shall pass over to a strong, to a stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the ensign, saith Yahweh whose fire is in Zion, and his furnace in Jerusalem. Do not be deceived. The famous Asbird's flying prophecy of Isaiah has everything to do with 2 Kings, chapter 19,
1: verses 34 through 36. And it has nothing to do with Anglo-Jewish Zionism. It is also parallel to Hosea 1-7 as we see clearly
0: here, that Yahweh would defend Jerusalem from the Assyrians, that Judah would not fall,
1: that Judah would be preserved. And Judah was for at least a hundred years. Disguised as British Israel,
0: Anglo-Jewish Zionism has attempted to discredit the truth of Israel identity with Jewish fables, and it itself has become a laughingstock. The asbird's flying prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in 2 Kings chapter 19 verses 34 through 36. It was not fulfilled in the British conquest of Jerusalem in 1917 so that the Brits could turn it over to the Jews. Further proof is in the words of Isaiah that in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold. The Jews in Jerusalem, you get them to cast their gold away. I want to see that. There's a whole different set of prophecies
1: that refer to them. Hosea 1, verse 8. Now when she had weaned Lo Ruhama. I'm sorry,
0: she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, Call his name Loami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. And Loami means not my people. Here we see it prophesied of the children of Israel that they would not be considered to be the children of Yahweh at this point any longer. Yahweh is not disclaiming them, rather, He is simply stating that they won't be considered his people, although they shall always be his people. Verse 10 substantiates that assessment where it says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered.
1: And it shall come to pass, and in the place where it was said unto them, You are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, you are the sons of the living God.
0: The records dug out of the formerly Assyrian ground by mostly British and German archaeologists in the 19th and early 20th centuries surely do attest that the Saxon peoples are the children of Yahweh. The Judean historian Flavius Josephus who did not reckon the Assyrian captivity of much of Judah, nevertheless attested that, therefore, there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans, and he means Judah and Benjamin. However, in truth, Judah and Benjamin in Asia and Europe, subject to the Romans, are only a remnant of the actual tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And Josephus goes on to say, While the ten tribes, and really it's the ten tribes plus those 46 fenced cities of Judah and Benjamin, right? While the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates until now, and are an immense multitude not to be estimated by numbers. And Josephus makes several other references to those people throughout his books. The people beyond the Euphrates are described by Greek and Roman writers. Yet none of them are ever said to be Jews. Looking beyond the Euphrates in the time of Josephus, we find Parthians, we find Alans, and other tribes, which are all accounted to be of the various branches of those people called the Scythians. And these are who Josephus intends. Josephus, in his book of the wars, says that he wrote his book of the wars for the northern barbarians, and they are the people that he means, those people beyond the Euphrates. Reading the pages of Strabo and Diodorus and many other Greek historians, we only find Scythians, Alans. Later on, we find Goths because a group of the Scythians became known as the Goths. And even Jordanes and many other early historians acknowledge that the Goths were formerly called Scythians. Jordanes goes so far, Jordanes is a 6th century AD Gothic historian, goes so far as to assert that it was his Gothic ancestors that fought Cyrus along the Araxes River in Northern Media.
1: Well, they're the Scythians. Verse 11, then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together
0: and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Here Jezreel should be taken in its literal sense because it means God sows. Here we see the word Jezreel used in connection with the Israelites of the captivity. The Jews of today would prefer us to believe that the people of the captivity disappeared. The Catholic Church would also prefer us to believe that the Israelites of the captivity disappeared, melting into the local population of Mesopotamia and fading into oblivion. That is patently false. In truth, the Scythians, who did not exist as a great people, before the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites, Scythians are not mentioned, were indeed descended from the Israelites of the captivity. They are the Israelites of the captivity. As Diodorus Siculus attests in his history, the Scythians were at one time a very small people who had their origin from his perspective along the Araxes River in northern Media. It was primarily, as we see from the Bible, the cities of the Medes to which the Israelites were deported by the Assyrians, along with several other nearby regions.
1: So we see that Yahweh
0: God had the children of Israel, along with an often overlooked but significant portion of Judah and Benjamin all taken away and sown elsewhere in the countrysides of northern Mesopotamia. From there, they would branch into Asia and Europe, where they would again manifest themselves as the Germanic peoples. Christianity caught up with them just over a thousand years later, and in some
1: cases, only six or seven hundred years later. Hosea, chapter 2, verse 1. Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to
0: your sisters, Ruhamah. Ami is my people, and Ruhamah is to have mercy. We are not following the last verse of chapter 1 here. Rather, the end of chapter 1 looks to the future reconciliation of Yahweh and Israel, which cannot happen until the coming of Christ, because Israel is being divorced by Yahweh. Here in chapter 2, the focus shifts back to Hosea's own time, where the final warnings are issued to Israel, the wife of Yahweh, concerning her adultery. Verse 2, Plead with your mother,
1: plead, for she is not my wife. Neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her
0: whoredoms out of her sight, and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and set her as as in the day that she was born, and make her as a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and slay her with thirst. And I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother has played the harlot. She to conceive them, has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil
1: and my drink. The children of Israel were commanded to be a separate people, period.
0: The command to be holy, the command to be a separate people from all others of the earth, begins with the Exodus in chapter 19, when Israel became the wife of Yahweh, acknowledging his sovereignty and his laws. The command is repeated all throughout the scripture. Here we see that one of the main reasons why in ancient times, Israel disobeyed the command to be separate was commerce. Commerce, the hopes of greater prophets, from the wider exchange of goods, the hopes of the procurement of cheaper labor for industry. They are the same reasons given today as an excuse for a multicultural society. Nothing has changed in 3,000 years. Solomon enslaved the Canaanites, Americans would have the Mexicans. Nothing has changed in 3,000 years because we do not appreciate history. We continually fall into the same traps. Our pursuit of commerce with aliens is what makes us whores because it compels us to accept the ways of the aliens. Hire Negroes and Mexicans into your corporation and the next thing you know is you have diversity training. And eventually, without fail, we end up in bed with them. We sell out our heritage. We sell out our principles. We sell out the covenants with our God for the sake of commerce, which is in itself idolatry. That's what makes us whores. That's why Mystery Babylon is commercial in its fabric. The people of Hosea's time did not heed the warning, and they were stripped naked. This is our model for today. How can we accept that same fate?
1: I'm sorry, how can we escape that same fate? Hosea 2 verse 6 Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall,
0: that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then was it better with me than now the children of Israel were set what were to be taken away captive and would not be able to return to Palestine. The way would be hedged up with thorns. Rather, the Israelites, later generally known as Cimmerians, as Scythians, and as Sake, along with the more peculiar tribal names which they adopted in captivity, sought after their pagan deities and never found them, until finally Christianity caught up with them 1,000 to 1,500 years later. Adopting Christianity, Israel indeed returned to her first husband. Yahshua Christ was the physical incarnation of God himself. Israel is depicted allegorically as the wife of Yahweh in both Isaiah and in Jeremiah. Yet Hosea wrote 100 years before those prophets. Another early prophet to make such a characterization is Joel, who, speaking of the future deliverance of Israel, says, at Joel 2.16, Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber, and let the bride out of her closet. Here the bridegroom is Yahweh, and Israel the nation is the bride. Yahweh tells us in Hosea that he is the first husband of Israel, and Israel will return to him. Later in this chapter, we shall see Yahweh promise once again to betroth those same people of Israel. There is no promise of any relationship between Yahweh our God and any other people to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. Whenever in the New Testament... Joshua, Christ or the apostles talk about the bride and the bridegroom, about the marriage relationship of Israel and Yahweh our God. And it's found in Luke. It's found in Matthew. It's found in John. It's
1: found in the Revelation. And it's found throughout the letters of Paul. It's probably in Mark, too. I just can't think of a place right now. Whenever in the New Testament... That allegory is made. It is in reference to these same people whom Yahweh says he will betroth again. Therefore, there is no room for any people of any other
0: race or nation to have such a relationship with God, to have a part in his covenants. They cannot be brought into his covenants. His covenants are exclusive to Israel. And the marriage relationship is exclusive to Israel to Israel. The theme of the entire Bible is built around the marriage relationship of Israel the nation and Yahweh their God. Their sin, their alienation from Him because of their sin, and their reconciliation to Him in Christ. Nobody else matters and especially the non-Adamic
1: races. Hosea 2 verse 8 For she did not know that I gave her corn, and wine, and oil,
0: and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for bow. God rewards us. We give it to aliens. We do it all the time. We're doing it right now. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof, and my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax, given to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers like walking in on your wife when she's in bed with another. That's the state our race is in right now.
1: And none shall deliver her out of my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease,
0: her feast days, her new moons and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she has said, these are my rewards that my lovers have given me and I will make them a forest, where
1: the Greek has a testimony, and beasts of the field shall eat them. When we fail
0: to acknowledge the blessings which we receive, that those blessings are from Yahweh our God, then we do not deserve them, and we shall ultimately lose them. The ancient children of Israel were blessed by God, but they imagined that their blessings had come to them through their intercourse with the other nations of the world. Imagine that, globalism. Therefore, they shared their blessings with the other nations around them and with the heathen in their midst. Here where it uses the expression, which they prepared for Baal to describe that very thing. So it is today that we are being led to imagine that our success is to be found in our diversity. And we are compelled to freely share our blessings with the other races of the world who did not create these things. Yet in reality, diversity only leads to our destruction. Today, all of the great cities built upon the foundation of international commerce, look at Detroit, are once again being devoured by the beasts of the field. Verse 13, And I will visit upon her the days of bowing, wherein she burnt incense to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels. And she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith Yahweh. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. That's mercy. This describes the transition period of ancient Israel as the Germanic people from Canaanite paganism and bow worship return eventually to God through Christianity. But it is not over. We have not yet learned our lesson that the pursuit of riches through commerce, and especially through commerce with the other races, can never lead us to security. To this very day, we coddle aliens, and we suffer their evil ways. We suffer their false religions. We suffer their race-mixing proclivities. And we suffer their false gods. All in the name of commerce and false commercial
1: prosperity. It leads to our destruction. Every time. Hosea 2.15. And I will give her her vineyards from thence, and the valley of Achor, for a door of hope.
0: And she shall shall sing there, as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith Yahweh, that thou shalt call me Ishi,
1: and shall no more call me Bali. For I will take away the names of Baalim out of her mouth, and they shall no
0: more be remembered by their names. We must recognize that we are the children of God,
1: our race,
0: and that our relationship to him as a race or a collection of nations is the same relationship that a wife should have to a husband. Ishi means my husband
1: and not Bally, which is merely my Lord. A Lord can be shared with many people. A husband, well, I would hope not.
0: When we learn this is a race, that our relationship to our God is exclusive in this manner, that we are to be joined as one flesh, to our Father and Creator as a wife is to be joined to a husband. And that this excludes all other peoples, especially those who are not flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, as Eve was to Adam, and as a husband and wife must be according to the law of God. Only once we make that realization can we truly achieve any lasting prosperity the beasts of the earth, the Negroes and the yellow people cannot share our God.
1: Just like you wouldn't want them sharing your wife or your husband. Verse 18. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the
0: beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword in the battle out of the earth, and will make them to lie down safely. And I could hear the scoffers saying, aha, and the universalist saying, aha. Some may insist that the phrase beasts of the field here means the non adamic races. If that is the case, then we must also interpret the phrases fowls of heaven, which can sometimes seem to refer to the progeny of the fallen angels, and creeping things of the ground, among which are serpents and scorpions, to also refer to certain non-Adamic peoples. As we see that such epithets are also often used allegorically of people. Everything else being equal, if one of these three descriptions is interpreted to be an allegorical pejorative, then all three descriptions must be allegorical pejoratives. Therefore, since they all have the same covenant, and since the children of Israel shall one day be free of all war, then all three of these groups share the same fate, the lake of fire, because that's where the serpent, the beast, and the false prophet, along with all those who are not written in the book of life, are destined. Otherwise, none of these statements are allegorical pejoratives. And the groups listed are only the literal animal beasts of the original creation. And the children of Yahweh will nevertheless live in that peace originally intended for those children of Adam inhabiting the garden of God. I really believe that this is the proper reading, and these are not allegorical pejoratives referring to the other races in this instance. However but that these are a rather general statement indicating that in the restoration of our race, nothing shall bother us any longer, whether you want to think these are people or not. Such is the Christian hope. Either way, in the result, the
1: end is the same, and the meek really do inherit the earth. Hosea 2.19 And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yeah, I will betroth
0: thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. Yahweh is still talking to the children of Israel. The church wants to substitute itself for the children of Israel. That's the doctrine of the Catholic Church. That doctrine is a deception and a lie. The children of Israel have not left the world. They have not left the planet. There has not been a rapture. Verse 20, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith Yahweh, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel, meaning God sows. Maybe that should be pronounced Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her, That had not obtained mercy, that's the children of Israel. And I will say unto them which were not my people, those low, ami people, still talking only to the children of Israel, Thou art my people. And they shall say,
1: Thou art my God. In the end, all of the children of Israel shall know
0: that they have an exclusive and an inviolable relationship with Yahweh their God. Just as we saw in chapter 1 where Hosea recorded warnings of punishment followed by a promise of hope. Here in Hosea chapter 2 we see that same pattern. It started off as a chastisement for whoredom. It ended with a promise of redemption. This is not a message for personal salvation. All of Israel is unequivocally promised both salvation and eternal life. If your seed is within you, you cannot die. This message is one of national salvation, of the promise of a continued kingdom here in this present physical world. And only once we accept that the mercy and the covenants and the promises
1: are entirely national in nature, totally exclusive to our race,
0: if we are indeed Saxons and Celts and related peoples. Only then can we properly appreciate their value and their meaning. Only then can we properly seek to do
1: that good for which we may later obtain a personal and eternal reward. All of Israel is saved. What we seek to do is preserve
0: our nation here on earth so that we can establish the kingdom of God here on earth. That's the prayer that
1: the apostles were told to pray. When they asked Christ how they should pray, And the main thrust of his response, thy will be
0: done, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the kingdom of God be established on earth and supplant supplant the kingdoms of the adversary. Those non-Israelite, non-Adamic, corrupted and polluted kingdoms of the world, such as China, the peoples of South America, the peoples of the dark continent, we are to supplant those people. We aren't to fornicate with them. We aren't to seek their trade and their cheap labor. That is fornication. We see here that Yahweh equated the fornication of the children of Israel to the commerce of the alien peoples,
1: there we have it, the source of all our troubles. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night with um a reading
0: of certain ancient Assyrian inscriptions related to the deportations of the children of israel and I, I haven't chosen them out yet, right, and my paper. Herodotus, Scythians, Persians, and
1: prophecy. Praise Yahweh. Good night.